everybody and welcome to episode number 95 of uncovering unexplained mysteries for saturday may 26 2018 my name is josh cannon and i'm here with my ever-present co-host i can't get rid of him i've tried his name is mike how are you doing mike i'm doing good how about you Oh my goodness, you're just bouncing that question right back over to me, over the it volleyball has, it, 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 it has not been a cool summer. Um, It's not been a cool summer either. Am I right? Am I right, folks? <laughs> oh, geez, well, I'm sweating Well, not for me, because my AC is broken. So, Still? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, dude. So you've just gotten weeks with no air conditioning? Uh-huh. Oh my god, how do you sleep at night with a hot-ass house? Uh, it hasn't been that hot the past few days because it's only been like in in the 70s out here so um early on a uh, couple weeks ago or a week ago it was kind of brutal but right now it's not that bad wow yeah my ac's been a lifesaver it's getting very 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 typical florida down here um we're you know the cold is officially fucked off which i am happy about but no i'm doing pretty good i just finished that uh, Depeche Mode cover uh, music video for Enjoy the Silence, my band Dancing with Ghosts, we covered Depeche Mode's Enjoy the Silence, and we made a music video for it. Um, Which was really impressive, I thought. I thought the production quality was really good. Um, I thought that it was a good cover as well. I, I like the gritty aspect to the video you don't see a lot of that nowadays i wanted to videos. i wanted to give the song because the song enjoy the silence by depeche Mode, which a lot of people have already heard i'm sure the lyrics feel very open-ended like you don't know exactly what the song is even about so i kind of took i kind of took the lyrics and reinterpreted it as if i were homeless and had very little you know the all I ever wanted, all I ever needed is here in my arms, you know, pretty much like in the video, Stephanie, who plays my, I guess, uh, girlfriend or wife or whatever. And, you know, we live in squalor and we have nothing and, you know, it's kind of like, but we're still kind of making do. That's the power of love that she's willing to stay with you, with your broke ass and in a, in a, in a total uh, rundown house <laughs> hey hey it was never elaborated in the video whose fault it was we were in that situation it could have been her fault for all we know it's it's not it's not known yeah it was so hard yeah. doing that video because like i'm i'm a very novice music video director slash maker slash producer and this is only my third video and it's it's so hard to break out of that construct of just killing the characters at the end of the video because, like, I found that that's, like, a very easy and cheap way to add drama, just shoehorn drama into a video is just to have them die or... Yeah, have it's some... almost a cliche. Yeah, you know, and, and I did it in my last two videos, and, and I was so tempted to do it in this video. I was like, no, <laughs> no, nobody is going to die in this video. That is so that is so cheap and easy for just, oh, at the end he gets shot, or at the end he keels, you know, he doesn't wake yeah. up when she goes to wake him up, and oh, so much drama, and it's like, that's ah, so easy and obvious, you know. I'm always trying to, okay, I did this this artistic thing. Now let me not replicate that. 
you know. Well, he's probably gonna die later because then he cough up blood. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, and I, but I did, yeah. So I did want to show that the character had some, you know, had some problems, and there was some kind of impending thing. So that's why he finally, you know, at the end of the video, the climax where he finally takes matters into his own hands. You can go watch that video by um, I'm plugging the YouTube channels right out the front gate. If you want to find me and Mike on YouTube for our um, extra content that we do outside of the podcast. You can find my channel at youtube.com slash dancing with ghosts and you will find that video on there. It's like the most recent one I uploaded. And you can find Mike's YouTube channel at youtube.com slash OCP communications. He reviews movies and all that. Um, For anybody who's been keeping up on our Facebook group, which is Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries, if you want to search the groups tab in Facebook, it's an awesome group. You should really join it. Um, the t-shirts should be in on Tuesday. Uh, so we have our first official merch for this podcast. We've been around, well, hell, dude, in June, it'll be two years. And it might actually, that might, it might yet again correspond to our two-year anniversary might line up with our 100th episode. I didn't think about that. (laughs) But anyway, we have, I finally decided to get off my ass and get some merch for this podcast because, you know, making money off this podcast is not something that that came to our minds at all in any way, shape, or form. We figured the Patreon was an obvious, seeing as, like, everybody nowadays has a Patreon. But, um, I don't know. The the shirt thing is more of a, I want want people to, uh, you know, be able to represent a podcast they like. And apparently, for some unknown reason you guys out here really like this podcast so um i want to make this you know high quality shirts that you'll be proud to wear so anyway i'll tell you all about how to order those you uh on the podcast and if you join our facebook group so enough of that bullshit out of the way we are coming back to um a case a series that uh we have been following for a while now it definitely not a new case by any means, but it, I don't know. Mike kind of had the idea of doing the West Memphis Three. Uh, I don't. What was it like? At least was it a year ago now, or that we started yeah, part like one. That, yeah. I don't know what it was, but we did part one. Uh, Paradise Lost, the documentary, the amazing documentary of the uh, West Memphis Three and the tragedy that happened there and that small town and how um, you know three little kids died. And it was blamed mm-hmm. on three teenagers who listened to rock music and who dressed in black and seemed like the perfect scapegoat. And, you know, basically, long story short, we find out that there was big mar- miscarriages of justice. There was profiling of all kinds. And um, it just goes to show you that profiling can happen to anyone, you know, not just certain factions of people out there it can happen if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time and you are convenient to solve a crime then you could you can potentially be profiled and your ass can get falsely imprisoned for a really long time which is essentially what happened to these three teenagers who are now three middle-aged men which is crazy to think about Mm -hmm. but it's true um Part one, I think, God, I, I should have had that at the ready here, but I want to say part one we did, it was like episode 60-something, and then we, there was a part two to Paradise Lost, and we covered that one, and uh, I'll put in, I'll try to put in this description of this podcast, uh, links to those other parts if you want to 
start from there. But we're, we're trying to do it to where you don't have to be a, a professional investigator for this case to get any enjoyment out of this. We're going to try to make it easy to understand and, and easy for you to follow along with. Then there was a part three in, uh, what, 2001, is it? Or 2000? And something like that, yeah. Yeah, and part three is really where I feel the series kind of should have ended or could have ended. But then we get this part four, which isn't really canon to the first three, but... but uh, uh, actually, I think Paradise Lost Purgatory was in... Uh, that I'm just checking to make sure uh, it was 2011. Yeah. Okay. So, so there's a big difference. Yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, I think the second one was in 2001. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Cause the first one was in 93 or yeah, the first mm -hmm. documentary and then 2001 and then 2011. And the, the documentary we'll be talking about today is called West of Memphis. And it's kind of the ending, the finale, the, uh, Actually, it was 1996 is when the documentary came out, the first one. Oh, okay. Because the case occurred in 93. Okay, so. yeah, my bad. Yeah. So this is kind of a, our final kind of case closing of, mm -hmm. of the West Memphis Three. And, and you know, we we said way back when we're going to cover all four parts, and, and this is our final part. And, you know, does it have to do with the fact that one of uh, the members of our group mentioned the uh, West Memphis Three case? Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think it was, uh, I think Robin might be his name. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he brought up, he's like, hey guys, I, was I just got done listening to your West Memphis Three, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, oh yeah, we we're supposed to do part four on that. <laughs> <laughs> hey man, we ain't working for no, like, corporate, you know whatever the fuck no one's telling us what we have to do and what we can and can't do so you know yeah. if if we get around to it we get, <laughs> we get around to it <laughs> so this documentary man this documentary is two and a half hours long and i personally feel like they went over a lot of the same information that they gave you in part three and you kind of, as you put it, you said that this is this fourth part or this fourth documentary is kind of West Memphis three for for beginners, like the starter yeah. starter pack. Yeah, yeah. Because it kind of just brushes over like everything that happened in the first three documentaries, the initial murders. And they even name drop the documentaries <laughs> in the documentary as well, which I found kind of interesting, <laughs> but it, it makes sense. You know. Yeah, so they cover the cases, you know, they show the parents of the, the children who were slain. Um, it, it Thank God it only shows short fat flashbacks of their bodies by the river, because that's mm -hmm. easily one of the most disturbing sights and the courtroom scenes of uh, the kids' mangled genitalia and shit. Uh, oh yeah, that's another thing that happened. <laughs> These three little kids ride their bikes to this, like, Robin Hood Hills. Robin Hood Hills. It's like a, a forest area, wooded area next to a, uh, I think like a freeway overpass or some kind of place like that. Right. And um, I think a truck stop is right next door. They, they never make it home. Um, you know, the parents are all, you know, understandably upset. They call the police. A search, you know, goes out. And um, 
This in this part four, it actually shows how one of the investigators, um, I think one of the parents was explaining how one of the investigators was like walking across this little bridge area and then he goes into this creek and his foot gets caught on something and he's not the parents it's actually the real investigator which i i have that written down not the entire exchange but i remember kind of what he said so yeah it's really powerful imagery so but yeah for those of you who might not know what this whole west memphis three thing is most people do it was there was these three boys uh steve branch michael moore and who was the other kid Chris Byers, isn't it? Chris Chris Byers. So Chris Byers, Steve Branch, and Michael Moore. And they ended up going missing, and then they were found dead later. And it was this small town in West Memphis, Arkansas. And this was like the worst thing ever that had ever happened in that town. And so there became this, this fever, this furor to try to find who did it. And uh, the fingers were pointed towards this weird uh kid who was did actually have a history of uh being in a mental institution uh damien eccles uh and in juvenile hall and stuff like that and his friends uh jesse miskelly and jason baldwin and so the police looked at them as a suspect because they believed that this might have been some kind of ritual sacrifice killing uh uh and uh, they did whatever they could to put those kids behind bars and get them uh, convicted of this. Uh, there, there really does seem to be, if you've watched the other documentaries, uh, and I definitely do recommend you do that if you haven't already, there does seem to be a shit ton of police corruption. Just a ton of corruption. Uh, then the, the lead investigator, Gary Gitchell, was, was, try, was going to run for... Uh, I think it was like state office or Senate or something afterwards. So he was clearly trying to get some political uh, favor. He retired after this case was closed and then he went into politics. There was like another um, guy there showing on that documentary too, that had these political ambitions and he was running, he was trying to get reelected for something. And, and yeah, it was, yeah. so there's like a bunch of politics that played into it too. And Hey, surprise, surprise. West Memphis is a small town, and you know how I feel about small towns. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you're looking for police corruption and just overall fuckery, look no further than your nearest small town, because mm. chances are high that that kind of crap is going on there. So West of Memphis is directed by Amy Berg, and it's actually produced by Damien Eccles and Peter Jackson, which is something that a lot of people who still feel that the West Memphis West Memphis 3 are guilty they they're like oh this is just a propaganda piece like all the other documentaries especially because Damien Eccles produced it now maybe he just has like a producer credit it doesn't necessarily mean he was really that heavily involved with the production i mean that's um, that's that's kind of a dumb theory for for the West Memphis 3 truthers out there which is what we're calling them people <laughs> people who believe that they 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 did do it you know and it's a dumb theory because, yeah, okay, if Damien Eccles had a significant role in producing this film, he was doing this film after essentially everything with the case had been said and done. The case was closed, the, the men had been released from prison, 
every, the dust had settled essentially. I mean, it's yeah. it's not like Damien was, you know, in jail somehow being able to help produce this movie back in like the '90s when the case was still hot and and all that kind of stuff. You know, it's like what's the propaganda? Who is he trying to convince at this point? The 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 uh, court system in Arkansas had already determined that they were innocent and let him let him out so i mean you know that's well, i mean if they did i mean well they didn't really necessarily determine they were innocent they said they i mean they still had to well is that, that they, it was that they funky, did the alfred yeah plea. the funky alfred plea which is ba- in this particular case it was the state not wanting to admit that they fucked up big time yes. and so and they and they wanted to let the men out the three west the west memphis three mm-hmm. out but they didn't want to, they still didn't want to cop to the fact that they fucked up and they didn't want to deal with the millions of dollars in false imprisonment um, fees that they would. That- well, I mean, if Damien really was all about just money and whatever and, and, and fame or whatever, he could have easily not have went along with it. I mean, well, he, he really had to because he wanted out because he was on the death row. So, um, of course, he took the Alfred plea. The other guys, they did it, too, because they, you know, they wanted Damien out so he wouldn't die. So, they, if, if there was really the whole, I mean, they could have easily waited for another trial and done this and whatever, but they were like, no, we'll, we'll take the Alfred plea and, and you know, we'll, we'll get out of, out of prison. If they hadn't have taken it, though, they, they probably would have rotted away in jail. Because that was kind of like the final. I think two, I think two of them might have gotten out. I think, but Damien might have not have been able to get out in time before he got the death penalty. Yeah. But uh, either way, yeah, it's this weird Alfred plea thing where you admit that you're guilty, but then you profess innocence or something like that. Yeah, it's. Uh, but I think that was a way for the state of Arkansas, and there's a new guy. Uh, who was uh, appointed the, the the judge because the previous judge who had looked over all the uh, the original case and the attempts to try to get get another trial, uh, Judge Barnett, he had uh, actually got elected to a higher position, so he was no longer the judge. So there was another judge who was kind of a rookie, and he was like, you know what, I, let's just just get rid of this case. You know, this is a very difficult case. It's, it's, you know, a lot of bad publicity and, you know, kind of thing for the state of Arkansas. Let's just get these people out and uh, we'll, we'll uh, deal with the fallout later. By the way, an Alfred plea is, um, is a guilty plea in criminal court whereby a defendant in a criminal case does not admit to the criminal act and asserts innocence. Yeah. So. Yeah. Exactly. So, um... Yeah, so that they culminate. This documentary culminates with that whole thing. But you know, if you've seen the third film, you already kind of know about that. This came out a year after the after the third one, because this came out in 2012. Oh wow! So it came out very soon after the third film. Jeez, I didn't know that. So it's almost like they were working like concurrently on two films. Then it would have to. It would almost seem like you know, like yeah, like like Damien was participating in the part three but was probably at the same time Mm -hmm. writing and working on on releasing his own you know documentary about and one of the big things is peter jackson who you who you might be familiar with he directed lord of the rings films and uh i remember him for some of his uh quirky absurd crazy low budget horror films 
that he did early in his career, like uh, Dead Alive, Bad Taste, Meet the Feebles, and stuff like that. And uh, so he was heavily involved with this because he was helping uh, Damien's wife, who was very heavily involved with the investigation, to try to help out her husband. I can't believe how much damn publicity and celebrity support these these yeah. boys got from I know. from these documentaries. I mean, it's crazy. It's yeah. Lori Davis was in direct contact with Peter Jackson and Amy Berg, so uh, it's through their collaborations and all of that that ultimately led to this this movie being made. Um, and it does cover a lot of the same beats that the third film did, but there are some extra stuff in it that I don't remember seeing from the third. So there's a little bit, there's some extra bits. So ultimately, it, it I liked it more than I, I than the last time I saw it, but I, I would say that it's it's not a great film. It's good. It's fine. Um, but it's it doesn't hold a candle to the first Paradise Lost. Not at all. And. I would argue maybe the third film might be a little bit better. I would say this is better than the second one because the second Paradise Lost is entertaining at times, but it's so horribly dated now because of the whole let's try to paint Mark Byers as a suspect and then that's just so dated now because none of that really necessarily fits anymore. So... Yeah, Mark Byers was the father of Christopher Byers, one of the boys that was mm -hmm. murdered. And Mark was this over-the-top, like, clown of a personality on camera. I mean, I'm sure he lives his life that way as well. But, man, when those cameras turned on, he put on a show. Like, he was like, I hope them boys burn in hell. Yeah. And they get to meet the devil real soon because they took my three babies and they mutilated their genitalia. And Damien, I hope that Satan meets you real soon. And he was like, gr you know, <laughs> grimacing his face and looking all mean. Yeah. And it's like, this guy. He went to the crime scene and lit a bunch of shit on fire. Yeah, yeah he made like effigies of the three uh, of the West Memphis three at the at the site uh -huh. where it happened, and he like set them on fire. He's like, "Burn! <laughs> Hell's gonna be just hotter than this. You just you wait. There's one for you, Jason, and one for you, Jesse. I won't do double for you, Damien. God, he yeah. was such a just a fucking moron." It's like, yeah, okay, you know, you you have a little bit of sympathy for the guy at first, you know, because it's like his kid got is is not here anymore, and but then all that sympathy kind of like, for me, dries up when you see how much of a fucking tool this guy is. It's like, man, if this kid had survived and had that guy as a dad, he probably would have had a miserable fucking existence, especially when you find out that Mark Byers, it like. You know, was he like he he beat his kids or something, or or he was like beating a neighbor's kid, he, and he's like he had gone to jail for like theft, and he had a drug yeah. habit, and, uh, and his and and there's rumors that maybe he might have killed his wife because uh, she was uh, having problems with drugs, or she was sick, and so he might have put her down, so to speak. Um, yeah, it's just so, yeah. a bunch of you, you. You learn all this, so that's why I actually do like the second Paradise Lost, is because this guy is such a clown. 
Well, I mean, it's interesting with the hear the extra stuff, but I mean, there's a lot of it that's trying to make him a suspect, and and that just does not age well. That's what I'm talking well, about. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I can I can uh, agree with you on that. Um, and then I feel in in part three, and what still continues on until part four is they then turn the light of suspicion. Okay, well, if the boys didn't do it and Mark Byers didn't do it, well, let's focus on Terry Hobbs. Well, the thing is, the police should have tried harder to look at the the parents in the first place. It's like this West Memphis Police Department was all like, it can't possibly be the the parents uh, of those those sweet little boys. There's no way. It, it's got to be these damn devil child. You know, these devil children. You know, the wear black and uh, are into the occult. Yet so, again, why I hate small towns. <laughs> But, um, but yeah, so this documentary, it opens up with, uh, it actually starts with, I think some like, uh, news stuff, like what a lot of the other documentaries did. And, and no then you Metallica actually have an interview. No, which <laughs> honestly, I, I like the use of Metallica in the previous documentary. Especially the first and, one, like their use of Welcome Home Sanitarium oh, yes, was it's so perfect. 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 So you never hear like a metal song used as a soundtrack. For a documentary, but yeah, like Metallica lent their music heavily in the like the first few documentaries. Like, there's some okay music here, but like what you have is like Eddie Vedder singing a cover of the Times They Are Changing. You should let them out of jail. I'm Eddie Vedder, and I got long hair. So, um, we'll get to Eddie later, but um. It opens up, and you have some of the news footage. Kind of gives you kind of a rundown of what happened, and uh, you have an interview with Pam Hobbs, the mother of, uh, I believe it was Steve, Steve, uh, Steve Branch, I think. And she actually shows the Boy Scout uniform that Steve had that she still has kept. I thought that was very tragic, and that was like a little extra bit of info that the other documentary didn't really kind of show you kind of thing. So I thought that was, you know, she kept it. Um, and I guess she originally used it so the police could use the uniform to try to track the kid's scent so they can maybe try to find the kid. And then she talks about how she feels uh, remorse because she could have actually prevented his death. Which is crazy, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing you don't think of it in hindsight, you know, in hindsight, it's easy to look back in the past and be like, oh man, like, if, if I could have just said that my boy could not go out of the house that night, you know, stay home, not go hang out with his friend, then he'd still be here, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of like the shitty lottery of life, you know, I mean, it's like mm -hmm. anything... Anything that bad that has ever happened to any of us in our lives, think back to that time when that bad thing happened. And I'm not doing some Scientology shit right now, I promise. Um, <laughs> I'm going to discharge those bad feelings associated with that thought. But no, like think back to that time when some bad thing happened to you and think about all the hundred of other options you could have chose and you would have avoided that. Well, yeah, like, for instance, like, when I left to go v live with my dad in Oklahoma City, like, I just flipped out and thought my parents were, you know, just not supporting me or whatever and so on and so forth. I could look back at that now and be like, I could have just dealt with that, finished my time at PCC, 
and then I would already probably have been graduated from a college by now. <laughs> right. Well, for and me, I might be uh, in a better position. But then again, I, 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 I honestly would not do anything differently. And here's why: because I learned some very valuable life lessons living with my dad in Oklahoma City that I would not have gotten if I didn't do that. Yeah. And I really learned how to appreciate what my mom and my grandmother did for me when I was growing up more than I would have uh, if I didn't do that. So it's one of those things where, yeah, if we could change it, you know, I, I probably wouldn't. But I mean, you think about it, you're like, I could, it would have been nice, maybe. But then you just realize, okay, it is what it is. But it's not the same as like a murder thing, yeah. you know. But at the same time, it's like you can't really change the that kind of thing. So I, I understand why she was saying what she did. But it's one of those things. It's like, you know, it happened. And uh, I don't think she should share any blame for what happened. Well, that's, that's why I reject the notion of everything happens for a reason. My philosophy is things... Shit happens randomly, but there is something to be learned from every situation that happens to us. There is something you can learn. There is some skill that you will acquire, whether it's learning how to cope with extreme tragedy. Hey, that's Mm -hmm. that's a valuable skill that not a lot of people have. And people who, you know, lose children and all that, they have to learn to become stronger than most human beings will ever have to, you know, learn to become. And that's you know that's a positive thing believe it or not being able to cope with extreme tragedy by and, and not I'd rather them not have to deal with well, that right. you know I mean because, but <laughs> but you have to you have to find something from that situation yeah and you know like I said yeah you know it, people get murdered all the time and and it has to happen to somebody you know and and that's why people always ask the question why me well it's like well why not you you're a person on the planet earth and it's a shitty lottery, you know. Th- th- there are good lotteries too. Good things happen at random, and then shitty things happen at random. It's a human experience, you know. And mm. your chances of shittiness happening are increased depending on certain factors like where you live, the actions that you take, um, and then other things are just completely random. And they could have like a fucking uh, j- uh, engine from a jet could you know, fly off in mid-flight and land on you and squash you, you know, while you're walking down the road, you know. I feel like I'm digging into Donnie Darko now at this point. As yeah. As plot lines go, but, yeah. Are, are, are you uh, seeing a rabbit now or oh, something? I, dude, I still don't understand that fucking movie, and people have tried to explain <laughs> it to me, and, and it just, I can't, I will never understand Donnie Darko. Uh, I do love it, though. It's a great movie, in my opinion, but anyway, yeah. I digress. So, um... Then uh, they actually uh, interview uh, Steve Jones, who is a juvenile officer, and he is the one that first discovered the bodies. And he goes to the scene where he discovered the bodies, and he recollects, and it is some horrifying shit. Yeah. He talks about how he, you know, he just had this hunch that maybe they might be in, in the, at the Robin Hood Hills around that area, and so he goes in, and he, I, I'm trying to remember what he saw, I think he saw shoes, yeah, he saw, he saw a shoe, shoes, yeah. uh, a shoe floating on the surface of this sort of uh, d- muddy ditch, you know, watery area. And then he calls the police and they come in. And then one of the other police guys is investigated, is not investigated, is interviewed. I, I don't necessarily remember. I think it was a sheriff's officer or something. And he tells the story of 
going into the the water and getting his foot stuck in something and falling on top of the dead bodies. And it's just the most like horrifying shit. I mean, it's straight up a horror movie. And it's real. Yeah. And, and that's the kind of stuff that a police officer like that deals with. And it's like, how do you cope with that mentally? Like, that would just be devastating for people, you know, for like me or you. Like, that'd be like PTSD, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially, like, I don't understand. Um, I mean, I don't know, dude. It just takes a different kind of person because, like, there's... One of our listeners uh, who lives in, in the great country of Canada, um, mm-hmm. she is a mortician. I'm friends with her now. She's a mortician in or a, a funeral home, I should say. She works in a funeral home. She is constantly uh, working on dead bodies and, and filling them up with the embalming fluid and doing all the other kind of things that you have to do. And, and sometimes she has to wear, like, like face masks and protective gear, I guess, because the, uh, you know, the the condition of the body is so bad and this, that, and the other. I'm just like, how the fuck do you do that every day and go to sleep yeah. at night? How do you do that, you know? Like, I, think, I think there's something about maybe the brain gets used to it after a while or something. I don't know, man. I, I think maybe there's like a natural coping thing that develops. I think certain people are born with uh, brains that function differently than others. And I think people mm-hmm. who work in funeral homes have different kind of brains that aren't like because seeing all those dead people, they can they can maybe you know they can separate things like they can be like you know this is just a job you know this is a dead body but you know it is what it is I got to do what I got to do type thing it's like what coroners you know medical examiners you know their jobs too you know they they. Who, who do autopsies and stuff like it's that. It's gotta be crazy when, like, someone your age or something comes in there, you know, someone, like, younger, and they don't look yeah. they don't look old, and it's like, fuck, man, you had so much life ahead of you. Like, what did you do? Well, I mean, well, definitely with little boys here, and especially in their mutilated state. Um, yeah, God, that's, yeah, that's, that's awful. So, um, yeah, th- that's a little bit of info that I don't remember the third documentary. Any of the other documentaries really talking about in depth. They, they showed footage, but, like, you never really got the perspective of the people who found the bodies. Uh, then there's, like, a few other stuff that's mentioned, kind of doing kind of a rundown of the trial and stuff like that. And the documentary does this interesting thing where it starts out, like, trying to paint them as being guilty, to try to give you the whole perspective that a lot of people had at the time before this these documentaries and before this other evidence started to come out that that said that they more than likely are not guilty um so i thought it was interesting to do that to have this whole like this is why they're guilty and then like hey this is why they're not you know um an, an interesting way to suck in the audience they mentioned the absurdity of the satanic stuff, and they showed that there were even videos that police officers watched <laughs> that were talking about satanic uh, rituals and stuff like that. It was the crazy. Is the, ch- it was, the yeah? They show these videos, and it's like daytime, like bad date '90s daytime <laughs> TV talk show bullshit. Speaking you know? of oh, speaking of daytime bad '80s daytime TV. We need to watch that Geraldo Satanic Panic whatever episode sometime because that even has an interview with Hobbs and uh, uh, 
Pam, a Terry, a Terry and Pam, and it has a bunch of other stuff, and and it's just it's just a cold gold mine for Satanic Panic. Uh, it sounds like um, a good live stream thing to do. Yeah, maybe. So, uh, but yeah, uh, it's it's just terrible. Like they have like uh, they show like a reenactment of something. They have like a graphic that says these are the things to look for in a satanic, you know, uh, crime or. And then they show like a, a, a footage of this lady or something tied up, and then they there's like a pentagram drawn on her chest. Yeah, it was it was like stomach. this very like um, you know, one, like like an in in like an instructional video. Like you just got a job working at Kmart in 1993, <laughs> and this guy comes out wearing glasses. He's like, "Hi," you know, and this girl's like on you know this you know almost like doctor looking kind of table and it's like uh -huh. turned up and she's laying on it and he's like typically the uh stomach is a very important area to put the pentagram if if for these satanic cults because of blah 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 yeah. and she's just like sitting there like as a as a test subject or an <laughs> example and the pentagram looks like it's written in like lipstick or something you know it's uh -huh. not even like you know yeah and apparently the guy uh i think he was the guy who was actually brought to uh the stand and the prosecution prosecution used him as a key wit a key uh not necessarily witness but like a key guy and he's the guy who didn't even get like an official uh degree oh, like he that, got yeah, it from that, like that old goober <laughs> man I, yeah. I hated that guy's dumb face you could just tell that he was just this like like mr magoo style like <laughs> quote-unquote expert yeah, he's an expert on on the occult. Um, yeah, he got his degree in the mail or something like that. Um, but yeah, uh, I just thought that was this just a satanic panic thing again, man. Now, uh, apparently, the reason why the the police look for, uh, looked at Damien first is because he did have an interest in the occult and he did have a history. Uh, th there were rumors that were swirling that he, you know killed animals and did sacrifices and shit but there's nothing that really has proven any of it it's just hearsay at this point and conjecture and just rumors but you know it's a small town word spreads so you know i can i can tell we see it spreading to the to uh the the police they thought he was capable of doing this also because there was this exhibit 500 document that was leaked after the case and it was originally supposed to be uh, something that the, his def the, that the defense was going to use, uh, that his defense attorney was going to use to try to show the jury that he's not all there, so he could not get the death penalty, and eventually they decided not to use it. And a lot of people, the truthers, the West Memphis Three truthers, they look at this document as like a smoking gun that just shows that Damien is, is just irreparably insane, and all of this, and so on and so forth. But when you look through the document, and you read all these different things from all these different psychiatrists who were involved, um, some are over-exaggerating events like to an extreme length, and other ones are doing it in a way that isn't nearly even as extreme. And so there's this whole thing that he threatened to gouge some uh, uh, guy's eyes out with uh, his fingernails sharpened to points, uh, but then you, you read it some more and you're like, he didn't really gouge anybody's eyes out and it was all over a girl. So maybe it was just one of those things where he's just like, I'm just going to try to, you know, defend 
my honor or so to speak or i want this i i I like this girl fuck you type deal that teenagers do and it didn't seem like it was that much of anything and then apparently there's like this whole blood drinking thing that he liked to do but it was just only one instance where a guy's nose is bleeding and he like stuck his finger or something on the blood and and licked it that's all that happened there wasn't anything uh substantial that really showed that like he was like drinking blood all the time and he was like it's sucking blood out of people's wrists and he was a vampire or something probably my favorite um, one that i heard was from the documentary was the one inmate that uh said that that damien had confessed to him that he uh took the testicles of one of the boys and put them in his mouth and that, that was actually jason i think yeah jason baldwin yeah that was that was uh i'll get to that guy michael carson okay he's totally that guy is a total liar but um but yeah the exhibit 500 there are some things that are disturbing when you read through it you're like okay he was kind of not all there at that time um there's a reason why he was in an institution um but he also wrote uh he wanted to get ssi so he 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 had he wrote down all these crazy things on this uh, document to get ssi like uh, what do you feel you are? Schizophrenic, psychopathic, you know, all this crazy shit. And um, a lot of people are looking at that like, oh, that's total proof that he's 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 these things. And I'm like, he's a teenager. He wants to get a free ride. <laughs> uh, he probably just thought of all the craziest shit possible to write down on the pa- piece of paper so he could get SSI. And he did get SSI later. So, um... I don't know. I wouldn't put much stock in that. I really wouldn't. Because it doesn't seem like he was actually officially diagnosed as any of those things. He just wrote those things down on a piece of document so he could get uh, SSI. Um, And then there was uh, the whole sort of thing about Damien being... saying all kinds of you know his his diaries and his poems were dark and stuff like that. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he's a killer, you know? He's interested in the occult. Doesn't mean he's a Satanist. Doesn't mean he sacrifices animals and killed these kids and drank their blood uh, for the blood god or any of that shit. <laughs> um, but I just thought it was kind of... And, and it, apparently he was very depressed and he was dealing with a lot of stuff. So it's one of those things where he's a teenager. He's uh, depressed. And, you know, there's a lot of stuff that can happen as a result of that. And he was still trying to find his way and whatever. And, and yeah, if you look at that document now, you'd be like, oh, wow. But like, if you, you see him nowadays, I don't think he'd hurt anybody. (laughs) He's just a weird kid back then. And he's a weird man. (laughs) He's not going to hurt anyone. Yeah. He's like one of those guys that would just leave his Halloween decorations up all year. Yeah, like that. He strikes me as the is that that guy where you know he even went to a party city or something in this documentary. It was like I like that skull. I like this thing. You know. Yeah, I mean, like I can't say that I would be friends with Damien. Like if I knew him or whatever. Yeah. Um, I knew kids like that growing up, and and um, they they did kind of weird me out. But then again, I grew up in a private Christian school, and I would I <laughs> I had my own indoctrination. So I think now I could I would totally you know be cool with someone like that, but but back then I still had that Satanist. I dude I had that they instilled that same exact fear in me that this small town experienced towards those kids. Like I was so afraid 
of anything mm-hmm. demonic or you know like i wouldn't li- i would i wasn't allowed to i wasn't even allowed to let alone did i listen to marilyn manson i felt weird no horror movies um it depended horror <laughs> seeing people get mangled and decapitated was okay as long as the person doing it was just crazy if it but as soon <laughs> as soon as satan got brought into it that's when it was like not okay that, that's no exorcist movies you, right no. yeah no your mother sucks cocks in hell no <laughs> yeah yeah that that was um well actually you know what that i think the exorcist would have been okay because it shows See, this is what Satan can do. Satan is real. <laughs> this is why you need to believe harder in what well, we're talking that, about. That movie actually did bring a lot of people back to the church when it came out. So yeah, yeah it's almost a, a, a propaganda piece for for uh, religious. Oh, you want to talk about religion. you want to talk about the biggest propaganda piece when the Passion of the Christ came out? Oh my my, oh, yeah. my church flipped or my uh, school flipped shit. They're like, oh my god, we got to rent out all the theaters and we all got to go and watch this movie see the thing is they're all like oh violent horror movies and all this and so on and so forth and that movie's even more gory than some of the uh slasher films i've seen well the, you know but it was our lord and savior it was showing the sacrifice it's such exploitation it's showing the sacrifice it, it, that he made mike so it's okay you know it's okay it's that- the exploitation of christ and his death that's really what that movie is. Uh, you know, whatever, man. I it, it I don't I don't give a shit anymore. You know, if people want to watch, if that's what people want to. I mean, if that's what people want to watch. That's cool. But like that movie is just crazy in terms of like the just over the top violence. All I'm saying is I'm glad at this point in my life I feel like I can safely say I have d de- I have I have unwashed. Uh, my brain of all the unwashed. What the fuck word does that even mean? I'm the worst. <laughs> I have deprogrammed all the programming, is what I should say. All the religious yeah. programming, all the biases and prejudices that were implanted into my head as a kid. I feel like I've almost successfully deprogrammed yeah. all that shit. So, you know. Yeah, there'll be something still there. I mean, that's just how it is. But, like, I'm, I, you know, most of it's probably gone. For me, I never really was able to get that much into it because I didn't have that great experience with it either i was forced to go because my parents were going or i i had bad experiences uh, keep in mind i was a kid with autism and asperger's and even people at sunday school you know were, were picking on me oh so me too. like that wasn't even really even a good uh experience for me oh, at all me too i totally got made fun of at church like all the popular kids who all went to the same school um, you know, they would, they would totally make fun of me and ex- yeah. exclude me. I, uh-huh. I had some awful, nothing but awful experiences from church. Um, going to that private uh-huh. school, making the friends that I made, that was pretty cool. But outside of that, awful experiences yeah. with that too. Just in, in, in you know, in, and I'm not trying to get too far off on a religious tangent here, but it does kind of go hand in hand with the thinking with the people. Well, in there's the a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of the people who were in the jury thought that way. Yeah, um, and, and, you know, just the fear-mongering that goes on, especially in yeah. Southern Baptist churches. I can't speak for other denominations, but for Southern Baptist churches, the, uh, you know, preaching the fire and brimstone of the rapture and getting left behind. Well, some. And, like, not all Southern Baptist churches, but a good amount I'll pretty much go out on a limb <laughs> and say all Southern Baptist churches, because if you're true Southern Baptist and you're not preaching that way, then other yeah. other Southern Baptist churches will call you out. Because uh-huh. I remember back in the day, like, every, like, all the preachers that, like, I knew that I went to school and had to listen to, they would all be like, 
And you can you can watch people like Joel Osteen, but they're only telling you the good side and the happy side. They're not telling you the reality of not following Jesus and blah blah blah. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you you know that that all was you can watch Joel Osteen and, and and contribute to his hedge fund if you want yeah, to. Yeah, you know? <laughs> right. That's a whole nother that's a whole nother fucking bag of tacos. Which that's a new phrase I just made up. A whole nother bag of tacos. Uh, but anyway, going back to uh, West of Memphis, um. Apparently, there were more stuff that was revealed about how just totally incompetent this fucking, uh, not only this trial, but this investigation was. Uh, apparently, police never even bothered to make that much of an effort to obtain alibis for, for uh, Jesse Miskelly Jr. or Damian Eccles or Jason Baldwin. Uh, they, a police officer talked to Jason Baldwin's, I think like his... I think it was his, I think, I don't know if it was his mother, but like someone who was essentially his guardian and talks to her and they don't even bother to try to get that much information out of her. And that's a big reason why Jason doesn't have an alibi because the police didn't even fucking bother to try to get him one. Um, uh, same thing goes for Damien and with uh, Jesse, like, I, I mean, there were like, there's like tons of people who could. Uh, say where he was and what he was doing that night and there's even like evidence that he was at a wrestling tournament and there's even like a sign-in sheet like how how yeah did, did... when they went off on that whole wrestling thing i was like what i was like why is this the first time we're hearing about this that this guy essentially had like a, an alibi you know yeah so, but, you know, of course, the, the West Memphis uh, Police Department, they didn't give a shit about that. They didn't care. They wanted to somebody. The 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 the, the public were getting uh, restless. And uh, they, you know, wanted to make themselves look better by actually getting somebody. Because if they didn't find the killer of these three precious boys, then a lot of people are going to lose their job. Do you think they would? Because they're not going to get think, voted for by the by the public. Do, do people actually? I mean, this is going to sound like a super naive question, but do people like in law enforcement will they legitimately lose their job if they aren't able to solve a certain case? I mean, uh, probably not. But I mean, I'm talking about people in the department who were trying to maybe uh, go up in a local government. You know, they're not going to get voted for by the local. And I'm sure that does tie into it. But I mean, that population. is that is so crazy that. There is this expectation from the public that you are Superman. You should be able to get this done and get this solved. But because you weren't able to do it, then you have failed somehow. And it's like, yeah. well, what if this is just a really fucked case where there it's it's going to be nearly impossible to solve? Because I can tell you right now that that how the fact that these boys like how they were murdered. When when we look at when we look at the people, you know, whether we're talking about an unsolved mysteries case or whatever, when we look at the people that are the hardest to catch, it's the people who had no connection with the victims. It was a random killing. That is the best way to get away with the murder is you find a random person and kill them that you have no connection to. And of course, a sane person is not going to do that. A sane person is only going to kill someone that they have a motivation to kill them for, like jealousy, money, sex, whatever. But, so, like, I feel like the true killer is just some crazy, like, drifter, you know, because this, this, um, Robin Hood Hills location is right by this truck stop 
where I would imagine a bunch of transients pass through. Well, there was a serial killer who I think was a truck driver around the time. Right. So, so I mean, there's rumors that that might have been the case. Um, I think that's definitely a possibility, but I also kind of, I, 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 I honestly do lean towards John Douglas's in, initial theory of things. So this was a crime of passion. Because it really does seem like something that could easily be a crime of passion. That somebody uh, who was related to one of the boys uh, just lost it. And then uh, something happened. And I'll talk about that a little bit later when I get to that part of the documentary. But um, yeah, with the whole alibis thing, it's like, right, you could just tell that something stunk badly from the beginning because they were just like not making that much of an effort. They were planning on railroading these kids. Uh, and it goes even further. Uh, apparently, Miss Kelly's confession, the first confession he made, ended up on the front page of the local newspaper before he even went on trial. So, right then and there, like, the jury is already going to be compromised because they've already had information about this confession that uh, Miss Kelly said about, and then said these horrific things about beating the boys and doing all this other shit. And... That ends up on the local newspaper before anything, uh, the investigation even really gets underway and, and people are arrested and everybody, it, it's, it's like, it's not even fair. But that was probably deliberate. I guarantee it was deliberate. And the, the, some of the people that are interviewed here, like it shows you how, I mean, honestly, I, I think some of them are ignorant or maybe not ignorant, but uh, just stubborn. Yeah, stubborn, stubborn, is is a, stubborn is a good word for it. Stubborn is a good word. Like Jerry Driver, who's just totally believing everything and thinking that they're still guilty and all of this and so on and so forth. Uh, Sharon French, who was a member of the jury, she still believes things like it was definitely the knife that did all those things. Uh, Fogelman, who, of course, you know, that guy, he's a shady, he's a shady shit, if you ask me. Because uh, of the stuff that he did in, in trial, like to to really put this image in the jury's mind that this was a ritual killing and this was all of this and they definitely did it and all this whatever. But that's how it is. Prosecutors and even defense attorneys. I mean, lawyers in general. That's how they operate. Yeah, and, let, and let's talk about that knife mind games. The, the knife. Well, I'll get to the knife a little bit later. Okay. But um, but yeah, uh, Fogelman, who actually ended up uh, trying to go for uh, uh, some a higher position, and uh, he actually did not win, which is good. And and honestly, that's interesting that Fogelman and Barnett, who were two key pieces in uh, the West Memphis Three, remaining behind bars and not getting a new trial and any of this other stuff. I mean, Judge Barnett looked at like the new DNA evidence that completely shows that none of the DNA that any of the West Memphis Police Department collected at that time matched any of the West Memphis three. And he's like, uh, whatever, you know, it's immaterial or I don't buy it. You know, they're, they're still guilty, but no new trial, you know? <laughs> so, um, but, uh, they were all connected and, and the only way things really move forward is when they went somewhere else and they weren't involved heavily in the case anymore. Because they were involved in other stuff. So there was this opposition with these uh, characters. But then you also had support for the West Memphis Three. From all places, celebrities. Like Henry Rollins. Yeah, the <laughs> the celebrity rollout in this documentary especially was just massive. I mean, you had 
Natalie Maines from the Dixie Chicks. You had Henry Rollins. You had uh, Eddie Brown. Eddie ding a dong. You had Eddie Veteran there. You had Patty. Uh, Patty Smith. Uh, yeah, Patty Smith. Very, uh, very uh, revered in the punk rock kind of world. Um, yeah, she, Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp, of course. Which who read? I think one of Damien's poems. Dude, on stage. His, Damien's po- da- Damien was like already becoming this kind of prolific, like uh, white man's Nelson Mandela or something like that. <laughs> like, like they were reading his shit like it was scripture, you know. Like, yeah. you know, he suffered in prison a fr- for a crime he didn't commit for all these years, and these are his writings, and you know. It, and Eddie Vedder is trying to say, like, you know, we're getting all the support and. And, uh, you know, we were thinking they'd be out in like a couple years, but, you know, that wasn't the case. <laughs> um, yeah, I, think, I feel like Eddie was alluding to the fact that they were going to be able to use their star power to, like, yeah. free him. Uh, Henry Rollins, I liked his interview. It was short but sweet, where he's talking about how, you know, he saw a lot of himself in Damien. You know, he's all like, uh, you know, angry at authority. Fuck yeah, that's me, you know. You know, saying all this, it, 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 you know, he was like, I'm going to, heck, you know, I was, I was the same way. It was a lot of the same traits that Damien had, you know, he's like, you know, that was me. Um, and, uh, th- there was like a, a charity kind of, do- a concert that they did like in, uh, Arkansas. And there were a lot of people who were against it. They're all like, this is, this is just totally wrong. You know, that kind of thing. But the people that were actually um, picketing outside, there were, it looked like there were literally like six or seven people total. It didn't even look like that. Yeah. Many. Yeah. Um, I would have to say this documentary doesn't have a lot of the devil's advocate, but I think the main reason why that's the case is because a lot of people refused to do it. You can't really have that much of a devil's advocate in a documentary if the other parents of the boys aren't going to say anything. They'll say stuff to the press... And to other stuff like that in written form, saying that they still adamantly believe that uh, the West Memphis Three are guilty, and even wrote an article, wrote something to the uh, Motion Picture Association when Paradise Lost Three got nominated for an Oscar, and they wrote like this big letter saying like, "Oh, this is just appalling and offensive. I can't believe that you would do this, and uh, that you would." Uh, nominate this film that parades the three murderers of, of uh, these precious boys and then lists off the evidence that shows that they're guilty, which I'll, I'll get to that later. Um, that's my final nail in the coffin for this case. But, um, yeah, so it, it's hard for you to have, have a devil's advocate in a documentary like this if there's not very many people willing to talk. So what are you going to do? <laughs> Excuse me. Bless you. Sorry. I'm allergic to the uh, bullshit of, yeah, exactly. of um, you know, people wanting to play devil's advocate. Well, I don't mind if people wanting to play devil's advocate. It's just one of those things where there's not a lot of people who are willing to do that. So what are you going to do? I'm not going to get angry or say the documentary is one-sided if they made efforts to get other people and they weren't willing to cooperate. So then you get uh, some more information about how just fucked up this whole thing is. Michael Carson, uh, who was the one who was interviewed on the stand in the original trial, and he's talked about how he talked to Jason when they were in juvie or something or in jail, and he's saying that he told me that 
uh, you know, they sucked the blood from the penis and did all this, you know, shit. And then Michael Carson is actually interviewed here and he's like, I lied. It was a lie. You know, I was huffing gas all the time. <laughs> I was totally fucked in the head. Redneck. Fuck. Yeah. This is your typical, like, your, your stereotypical image of, like, a redneck, like, teenager, you know, just huffing gas and, you know, just, yeah, like. And the police used that, used his state to their advantage. Like, the prosecution knew all this shit about him. And they were all like, we could totally get some crazy fabricated bullshit out of this guy because he's fucking high. Yeah, and he doesn't know which way is up. And he was talking about he's like, yeah, when you're huffing gas, you don't know what's true and what's real anymore. Yeah, and he's <laughs> like, I just believe that, it, you know, I thought it was true. You know, it was all illusion. I like the fact that he came on, though, and said, you know, he apologized to Jason. That takes a pretty, you know, big man to do eh, that, especially. Oh, no, man. Like, like years well, and I mean, years after the fact. Yeah, you know, yeah, I know. But on man. camera, on camera. For everyone to see. That's what I'm talking about. Uh, I feel like that's the least he could have fucking done. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Well, I mean, there's even other people who come up later, years after the fact, and try to provide new evidence. And I'll get to that later as well. Um, it goes both ways. <laughs> um, but yeah, you have jo Joyce Curriton, who's the former director of the Juvenile Detention Center at the time. Even she's like, she's she said, there's no way that these boys did this. And she actually says it to the, the Craighead County Sheriff at the time. She's like, these boys did not do this. And then she says, this is what Larry said to her. Grittenton County fucked up, and now we've got to clean up. She shows you the corruption there, right then and there. They're like, it doesn't matter about like whether it's uh, the right thing or not. You just reminded me of The Rock just said, It doesn't matter if they're innocent! <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter what you think. <laughs> yeah. Hey, let me ask you a question. Do you think they're innocent? It doesn't matter if you think they're innocent! <laughs> if you smell... <laughs> what? West Larry Emerson <laughs> is cooking. <laughs> so, um... I thought that was a pretty, uh... That was definitely a bombshell. It's like, wow, okay, that's even more evidence that this is totally just fucked up from the start. Uh, then you have Vicki Hutchinson, who actually came in in the year 2004 and was recanting her statement about Damien's involvement with a cult that she said she was a part of, and the state of Arkansas refused to grant her immunity at that time. Like, they still were trying to do everything they could to sweep this under the rug and keep the, the, the three... Uh, the West Memphis Three behind bars. Uh, and uh, she's even talking about how she was tasked by the police to go in and try to talk to Damien. And, and she went in there and, and she's even, she's telling the truth and she's all like, uh, you know, I, I just saw, he was just like every other boy, you know, it, it is a bit weird, but you know, it, it's just like every other boy in, in the area. There really wasn't anything uh, that I thought really tied into the the crime or anything like that. And you could tell she was definitely uh, distraught about it. Um, and I guess she for years she didn't come out forward because she was afraid of, you know, what the police would do. Now, that's understandable. You're in a small town like that. You don't want to come forward like 
you know they'd be like well we told this is agreement you you said you were going to do this like you know we're you know we, we we don't like that so and it was one of those things where uh could not put that in the trial because the, the damien's retrial because the government would because arkansas wouldn't allow it and then you have the knife and i thought the this documentary did a great job showing how uh absolutely manipulative this this section of the trial was where Fogelman's talking about this knife that was thrown into a that they found and they're trying to tie it into the murders and and uh even has a knife going into an apple and doing all this other shit and he's talking about how this is the knife and the, the knife and whatever and uh, there's an, a, a very well-known uh, defense attorney. He's like, well, the knife was thrown into the lake a year before the crime occurred. Like, he already knew that the knife was there. And you find out that when the scuba divers go in to look for the knife, they found it, what, 30 minutes? Yeah, well, they, yeah, I mean, he basically told them where in the, in the, in the lake it would yeah. be at. And, you know, as soon as the diver comes up, they snap a picture of it. It's on the front page of the news. And it's mm -hmm. like high-level... Uh, setting up of these uh these kids you know to take to the fall for this crime there's no dna evidence on the knife there's nothing to tie it to the crime other than just uh, it could have done these uh could have caused these uh serrations and these other things and so yeah and and i like how one of the people who are interviewed is just showing how irresponsible a uh, fogelman was he was just like this guy is terrible like this is totally he's just lying to people yeah, and then they get into, uh, and I'm, I'm sure you have this in your notes that you're going to... Dr. Frank Peretti? Yeah. No, I was going to talk about the uh, the turtles. The, the... Well, yeah, I'll mention Dr. Frank Peretti first. Okay. Dr. Frank Peretti, uh, he was a medical expert that was brought on in the trial. He was, an, uh, I think he was an uh, associate or something for the medical examiner. And, uh, and uh, like, I don't think associate is the right word, but he was, like, uh, one of the guys under the examiner. But he was an unreliable expert because he failed exams for board certification three different times. He was never board certified. And also, in, in the state of Arkansas, the, the crime lab is controlled by the prosecution. Which in, And since Peretti was a part of the crime lab... He was also in the pocket of the prosecution the entire time. Yeah, and there, just, Arkansas is one of the only states where, yeah. where that is the case. Where the crime it's lab is controlled by the prosecution. Entirely one-sided from the from the get-go. Like, I mean, that's that's the definition of an unfair trial, if you ask me. I mean, the crime lab is controlled by one side of of the of the of the the trial. Like, like how the hell is that fair? <laughs> so, yeah, the the documentary did a great job, though, showing Peretti adding more fuel to the fire with his brutal and merciless representation of the evidence and showing all the pictures and gory detail to the jury to form this image of a cruel and unusual horrific murder. And that's one of the big reasons why they got convicted is because he's going and he's talking about the cutting and the gouging and uh, the, 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 the anus was dilated and there's all this other stuff and and uh, the, the, the flesh was sliced off the body. You know, it's, it's just this very just gruesome depiction of the murder. And tying the knife into all of it. So that's definitely what made a lot of people believe that they did it. 
and it was based on circumstantial evidence and a whole lot of lies. But that, so Peter Jackson, he actually went in and he heard uh, in the trial that Peretti was talking about how he was friends with Dr. Vincent J. DeMeo. And so he actually goes to him and he shows uh, the evidence and the photos and everything. And this guy who Peretti said he was a colleague of completely disagrees with Peretti's findings. He says the autopsies were done in exquisite detail, but the interpretation of the findings were completely wrong. He says that nothing provided in the autopsy report of the pictures shows that the wounds were performed by a knife. That they more than likely happened after death. Yeah, he was saying that the the the, the knife wounds that they the style in in which they are found on the bodies it was meant to torture so the the victims. But since they were found post, you know, they were they were done post mortem. Well, why would you why would you draw drag a knife across the back of a dead body? You know, it wouldn't make sense. Mm -hmm. And that's when they get into what I thought was one of the most interesting parts of this whole documentary: yes. the the snapping turtles. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Definitely. Because information is provided that shows that the wounds are more than likely caused by animals eating or tearing at the flesh after death. There's an example of snapping turtles that is shown, and visual proof is displayed that shows that the area where the bodies were found was full of wild animals and the time at the time period. And the area the, at the at the particular time period when the bodies were found, uh, that it was ripe for snapping turtle activity. And they actually show snapping turtles eating flesh, and they show that scratches are very similar to uh, the scratches that are found in the body. And they're, they're, the West Memphis Three Troopers will go in and they'll be like, well, they corrupt the photo that they showed on on camera and, and this other stuff. And, and, and the documentary is trying to say that uh, so-and-so uh, tortured and, and killed the boys, but then they're also trying to say the snapping turtles did it. And then I'm like, you're completely misinterpreting the documentary there's nothing in this documentary that's saying that they believe that Terry Hobbs or someone else did the torture and sliced the kid's face open or, or sliced the genitals. None of that is displayed in this documentary. They're saying that that was all caused after death by animals. And it makes sense. Uh, four other medical examiners also looked at the same autopsy report and the photos and all determined that the wounds occurred after death. That's five against one. Okay, and these are board-certified medical exam medical examiners, not some guy who never got a, a, a board-certified uh, title. So uh, I, I'm going to take the five different medical examiners' word who are professionals who are board-certified over the one guy who isn't board-certified any day of the week, any day of the week. I just love they actually showed like footage of this guy who I guess raises these kind of like turtles and yeah. he like actually like reaches his arm into the tank and has the turtle and that turtle man those turtles are mean you don't want to fuck around with they those are. kind of turtles that turtle latches onto this guy's arm and he's like no no he's like let you know let him let him do it let him go and Finally, when the turtle is released, the abrasion that is made on this guy's arm is the exact same pattern to a T yeah. as the as the abrasions that were found on the little boy's bodies that were supposedly these mm -hmm. knife wounds by some sick, demented, you know, person. And they're also talking about how, yeah, these turtles, they go after, when a body is in the water, they go after the soft, fleshiest part, the easiest parts 
um, of a human body, like the 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 uh, scrotum. You know, it's very soft and and fleshy and dangles off the body. Um, the nose, the ears, the lips, the lips. These were all places on these kids' bodies where these patterns were found that were all supposedly, oh, but they were done, you know, for this satanic ritual. That's why the, it's like, no, dumbass, it's, it's nature. Now, granted, you know, I don't expect a bunch of hillbilly cops to go that in depth into investigation to where they're like, oh. It's- well, the thing is, they even actually sprayed luminol on, on, the, on the murder site. And there's pictures that show the luminol. And there's a lot of people who are going in and, and the truthers are trying to say, well, that proves it. You know, there was they the other documentary was trying to say that there was no blood found at the scene of the crime, but here's blood. And I'm like, if there was blood found, it would have been caused by the snapping turtles just eating a bunch of eating the flesh and just spreading blood everywhere. But also at the same time, Luminol does not only just pick up blood. Luminol picks up feces and other materials. So Showing me a picture of some spatters of lumina of, of something that was found in the scene of the crime does not show me anything. I'm sorry. Doesn't prove a thing because luminol is not just exclusively something that finds blood. So it's one of the I, I love how a lot of these like smoking gun defenses, it's like I can pick it apart in seconds. <laughs> like just by doing research and just thinking for myself. It's like luminol is not just exclusively a blood thing. <laughs> And it's in the woods. There's going to be plenty of other type of things that Luminol could pick up. Like, maybe even blood from something else. Because you know what? There's animals all over that area. Right. So, um, yeah, so that was really a a very compelling thing to show the snapping turtles and everything matched and how people who lived in the area were like, this is this happened a lot. There were animals. There's like armadillos and stuff. Like an armadillo fell in the water and it got eaten in like a few minutes, you know. So it's like this is not something that's that unusual. Uh, so it makes sense. Uh, five different examiners are like this happened after death, uh, and then you have the wounds that match the snapping turtles. Now some people would say they didn't do that for every single photo or every single wound or every single whatever. But they didn't have to because they had five other medical examiners who corroborated pretty much the same thing. Then they go into Terry Hobbs again, where he was foolish to try to sue the Dixie chick because that's what ended up getting all this shit out in the open. Yeah, he sued her for defamation of character because she was, you know, making all these kind of statements. Uh, but I don't think at any point she ever, like, said he did it. I think she just said something no. like they should look into him or whatever yeah. and he sued her and because he did that they were finally able to depose him and he had to he had to speak on a bunch of things that he had never formally spoken on and and they they it just made him look a lot worse than than had he never been put into that position definitely um then you hear about the DNA evidence. Uh, there's a hair that was found on ligature of one of the shoelaces that used to tie up one of the boys, and it matched with Terry Hobbs. Now, to uh, give a little more info on that, the 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 match is something that I, I mean, yeah, there 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 was like thousands or something of potential people who, or maybe millions that could match it. So I mean, that kind of is a bit of a flimsy piece of evidence. I have to be honest. That, but it's still something. 
That's more that's more evidence than there is for any of the West Memphis three because none of the DNA matches anything from any of them. Uh, so, but there is something that matches that that has Terry Hobbs linked to the crime, and um, and then also his friend, which is also that's one I don't remember hearing before that his friend David Jacoby, his DNA was also found on the crime at the crime scene. Um, but yeah, um, the DNA of the West Memphis Three is cross-referenced with all the other DNA evidence, and nothing matches. And then you get Terry Hobbs' violent past that gets revealed, and it is rough. You, you hear about his abuse of his children, his wife, Pam. You hear the story about uh, his neighbor, Mildred French, who heard him beating his wife and kid and confronted him about it in the 80s. And then he goes and breaks into her house and then like grabs one of her breasts and is like belligerent and shit. And she calls the cops and he gets arrested. Like this is all stuff, and he's like, "Do you remember this?" Like, I, I don't recall, you know, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, he apparently like fucked his daughter at one point, and she's all yeah. There's this whole she's yeah. all messed up in the head now, and she's talking about all this guilt that she doesn't remember. She's all like, "I feel guilty for all these things, and I, I I don't remember any of it, and I don't know what's going on." And yeah, there's the 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 uh, aunt is talking about things where. Uh, his son was saying that, you know, uh, he he likes uh, her better than me, you know, talking about uh, 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 Terry's daughter. And apparently he used to hit uh, Stevie and he hit him with a belt and he did a lot of other things. And there's there's crazy shit like saying that he might have masturbated in front of him and then maybe forced Stevie to watch him uh, sexually abuse his sister. Like that. If this is true. Like this is like, whoa, like. Crazy. That's the thing, though. It's I'm, like it's like this same exact kind of stuff was said about like Mark when he was a suspect, and it's just you know what? A, not to this extent. Yeah, not not to this. Well, I don't know because he had all that sketchy shit about the drugs and the. Yeah, but there wasn't the masturbating yeah. and and the sexual abuse, and seeing that the daughter is really messed up, and she's having this whole thing where she has this mental block where she doesn't remember a lot of stuff. That usually is the type of thing that occurs when somebody is abused. That's, yeah, that's true. So, um, and the way that he just buffs his shit off and he's all like, that didn't happen. No, you know, and he's even trying to not make it a big deal with the whole thing with Mildred French shows me that there might be something to this. And on uh, the body, I think of Chris, there was a belt mark that was found on his body when he was, when he, when uh, they, uh, saw his body, you know, after it had, had expired. Um, but, of course, his sister comes to his defense, which is understandable, but, oh, nothing ever happened when he was here with me and all this other stuff, and, um, and I'm like, of well, course, of course... Of course you're going to say that. <laughs> it just seems like there's a lot more people that are saying that he was abusive, that he had a temper that he would just kind of fly out and lose it. And that's some of the same stuff that I, happened with Mark. I still don't think he would have killed those three little kids and, like, mutilated their genitalia. I, I just, I don't think... I don't think the mut genitalia mutilation happened. Remember, it happened after death. I don't think he did anything like that. Um, I agree with uh, John Douglas's theory, though, that it was a crime of passion, that Terry... I don't necessarily believe 100% that Terry did it, but there's a lot more things to point to him as a suspect than there are to any of the West Memphis three. 
And the fact that they just, the police just kind of did a courtesy thing where they brought him in and we're all like, you know, we're just, you know, we don't think you did it, but you know, we're just going to ask you a couple questions. And they didn't really do anything that much uh, when it comes to an in-depth investigation on him or anything. And it's like, if this abuse stuff was true, like I would think you would look at him more, but they didn't. And they didn't even do it that much after the fact. So, and then the fact that his alibi is completely shot after David Jacoby, his friend, is all like, uh, didn't happen like that. He came over, uh, played guitar for an hour, and then he left. And I don't know where he was. I don't know what happened. He didn't tell me that he was going to go look for his boy. He just, you know, he just left. I mean, he said he was going to look for his boy, but he just left for like two hours. And there's two hours where he's not accounted for from 630 to 830 p.m. on the night of the murder. Then his, then so, his nephew comes out and talking about the Hobbs family secret. And yeah, I'll get to that back. later. And I think that's just a bunch of I, I, I don't necessarily yeah, buy I that one. I didn't really buy it either. But uh, with uh, the whole thing with Hobbs, like I, he might have, like it might have been, he went in to look for his boy because it's late. He was supposed to be home at four thirty. He's not. He has this history of being mad at him and disappointed in him and abusing him. Uh, and maybe something could have happened where uh, he saw the kids. They were still playing at the creek. It's late. He's trying to get them to go back home, and they're like, "We're not going anywhere." And he was like, "You know." how dare you and he got mad at at at, uh, at Steve and he hit him and he hit him hard enough that he killed him think about it. remember that that case that we talked about in unsolved mysteries where the guy looked like the most innocent person possible who was a, a sheriff yeah and, yeah yeah and he actually yeah he actually like shot his kid um yeah yeah what was that did i don't remember was that an accident or was that I think he actually hit the kid or something. Like, what? It wasn't a shot. The kid. I think he hit him. Right? He hit him. And uh, the, the, I think the the I think it might have been like hit him hard enough that he, he was he, he killed him. Oh, okay. And uh, I think there was might have been a shot, a shooting, or a bullet or something involved. I feel correctly. like there. But it's been a while since we've seen that. Yeah, that segment. that case always like stuck out to us. Like we always bring it up again and again. <laughs> yeah, cuz we're like he did. He was like the most innocent, you know, like there's no way. Like you know, he didn't do it. And then you're like, well, maybe he did. It looks like he did do it. <laughs> um but with you know, crime and passions are like this. I, the FBI profiler John Douglas, I think he has a great case, a great idea of this murder. Um, uh, of what how it might have occurred. Saw the kid. Uh, was, uh, was upset at the kid. Terry hit him hard. He, you know, he died, and the other kids were there. And he's like, I can't have a witness. And then he just has this, he has this history of like doing crazy shit, and then like not really necessarily recollecting one hundred percent what happened. Just flying into these rages and stuff. So that could have been what happened. He killed the kid, and then the other kids were witnesses. And they're like, well, three different people, there are three different knots tied on the kids. <coughs> uh, excuse me, how could that have happened? Well, uh, how about this? <coughs> Bless me again. How about this? There's three different knots because he hastily tied up all three kids. You know, it's one of those like, I gotta do it real quick, whatever, and then that's what happened. Maybe it maybe uh, some of the other kids 
uh, maybe they died of exposure or something like that, or he just left them there, or he knocked them out and thought they'd wake up later, but they never did. It's one of those things that there, there's more of a potential to me that there was a crime of passion involved here, um, especially involved with, with uh, maybe some one of the parents. But then again, it could have also been some random killing. Could have been that too. But there isn't really a lot of stuff involved with, I mean, it just doesn't seem like there's a lot of calling cards for that, you know? So that's the thing. It definitely seems like there might have been something involved with maybe one of the parents, saw one of the kids, was upset, hit one of them, they died because of the injuries, and then the witnesses were there, the other two kids, and they just did something rash and took them out because they were like, well, I don't want to go to jail, or I don't want to deal with this, or whatever, and and that's what happened. Um, and that ties into the Hobbs family secret with Bla Blake Sisk and Cody Gott, who actually have a criminal history. Like, these three, these two guys, like, uh, some were arrested for drug possession or drug selling and actually have been in jail. So I don't know what, really what to say about them. Also, their father was a talk to and he wasn't really corroborating what they said. And what they were trying to say is that there's this Hobbs family secret that that uh, one of their like the father of one of these boys or whatever was saying admitted to them that uh, or, or like the son of one of the fathers admitted that. Uh, they did it or something, or like uh, Terry did it, and it's the Hobbs family secret. That just seemed like a lot of hearsay to me, and 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 they and clearly this happened years later, and it was this whole like the West Memphis Three hotline is trying to get information, so they're all like, you know, it's one of those things where I take that whole thing with a giant grain of salt. Yeah. Um, and then some of the other stuff, like there's some of the other people who come in and come out and say that. Uh, well, Hobbs, see the, the one lady who comes in and says that she saw the kids or something. That's one of those things where it's like that happened years later too. So it's like, how reliable is that? Like, how reliable is her statement? Yeah. I mean, I, I was just asked by a police officer today because apparently somebody broke into my neighbor's house across the street and well, they haven't moved into the house yet, so I think that's that's why the cop was saying it most likely got broken into, which still doesn't make me feel great. But the cop was asking me, you know, have you seen anything over there, suspicious, blah, blah. I see, dude, I see people at that house all the time walking in, walking out. I've seen a black dude there. I've seen white people there. I've seen older people there. I've seen younger people. I've seen pretty much every color under the sun of of person that could be a suspect over at that house and like even though I just saw that shit my memory was fuzzy I was like I don't really remember like you know I've seen a lot of people over there and so to like draw on you know years of of time gone by is just like you know that to me is just not yeah. super reliable in and of itself yeah um but then afterward, then after that, then they just talked about like their release for like thirty minutes. I kind of lost interest in the documentary at that point. It's too long, man. It was too. It, it did yeah. not need to be two and a half hours. They could have condensed that shit down into an hour and a half. So yeah, then it pretty much just does the whole. They're leading up to the release. They're trying to get a new retrial. The judge is like, no. You hear about the political stuff involved with Barnett and Fogelman, and and they eventually get. Uh, 
away from the case and that opens the door up for another trial to happen and then you get the whole alfred plea and uh here's some actually some decent poetry from damien talking about time. uh time and stuff like that and uh you see him and his wife going to party city or whatever and looking at the halloween decorations <clears throat> And, uh, excuse Mike me. becomes a man. Apparently. <laughs> no, it's just talking so much, man. It's a lot of talking. Um, but yeah, uh, and then it just pretty much ends. Uh, I mean, I think just like with interviews at some of the West Memphis three and you see some of them, uh, footage of them reuniting with their family. Uh, the one where you have, uh, Jason with his girlfriend or, and he's like eating salad for the first time. That was that was kind of, that was interesting. Yeah, I don't know if that was the first time he was eating salad. It was just kind of like his post first salad with cheese. Yeah, 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 that's the whole thing. He's like, is there cheese in this? And and the <laughs> and the chick's like, yeah, you've never had cheese before. And he's like, I've had cheese, just not in a salad. It's like, do you want to eat anymore? It's like, no, nah, I'm good. <laughs> If it wasn't for all this West Memphis three stuff, you kind of wonder what what these kids would have like grown up to be like, being stuck in that little, you know. Uh, well, Jesse Miscali Jr. definitely lived in in a very uh, uh, trailer park, you know, type. Of, he lived in a trailer park, that's for sure. And he's um, pretty much the only one who has remained kind of in that same world. Like he's still lives and works not too far from where everything took place. Mm -hmm. um, Damien went on to... He's pretty much found a way to monetize uh, this entire experience. Yeah, he he's moved to Salem. He's got a Patreon account that, that you... It's got tiers that go all the way up to $1,000 a month because I guess some people are willing to pay that. I mean, Dang. not to mention the amount of books that have been written about them. Uh -huh. He he speaks uh, at a uh, at at uh, colleges and stuff like that. And apparently, a lot of the West Memphis West Memphis truthers will go in, and they're trying to paint him as being, you know, like, oh, well, he says that he he didn't do these certain things when he was a kid. And I'm like, you understand? Like, he's he's an older man now, and maybe his knowledge of what happened back when he was a teenager isn't as fresh as it was in 1993 when he was interviewed. Uh, or maybe he just doesn't want him to be associated with a lot of the stuff of West Memphis. So maybe nowadays he's, he's just like saying things like, oh, well, I didn't really go to Robin Hood Hills that much or I didn't walk there because he just doesn't want to be associated with it. Like, I don't blame him. I really don't. And, and him not knowing the exact times and all this other stuff, like who really knows all of that? <laughs> I don't know the exact times or the exact dates or the exact way certain things happen in my life especially after what 20 years yeah and and if you and if it's somebody who well you know people uh present the truth to him and he runs off like maybe you you had some crazy guy show up at a public speech that he's having he's has a speaking engagement some truther shows up and is all like oh davy davy tell me about this and bloody and then he has every right to be like fuck you i'm leaving yeah which is what <laughs> i would he's got nothing to prove to those people he has not he doesn't have to answer to them he has nothing to prove to them you know that's yeah, like 
It's not even like you can look at Damien and go, oh, well, he's he's kind of an opportunist for making all this money now, you know, after... And, and, you know, they don't go right out and explicitly say it, but, you know, you know, a lot of... If people buy the books, that's their thing. Like, they're clearly interested in it. Um, Well, also, too, what I was going to say is that, like, who the fuck would want to be imprisoned for that long just so you can get some sweet Patreon deal after you get out where it's like, man, I'm going to have a lot, I'm going to make a lot of money for, you know, all I have to sacrifice is, you know, 15 years of my life in living in a uh, solitary confinement in prison. Oh yeah, that's totally the mark of an opportunist right there. This guy, this is a get rich slow scheme if that's what people, you know. Yeah. Well, then I mean, some people also think like he does this thing where he might tattoo people. Like they, like people are, you know, his group. He has, he does have some groupies. Really, it's crazy. Oh, he, no, he absolutely and, does. I mean, I know, I know. And they want like an X, you know, his mark or something. And of course, some people are trying to tie that into. He's totally satanic. He's putting his mark on them. You know, like the mark of the beast. So what if he is? <laughs> I mean, you know, that's 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 moot. That's a moot point in the case. I mean, Satanists don't believe in killing. You know, innocent people they're they're more it's more about honestly yeah real satanists aren't really nearly as as uh, no satanists are about like do do whatever you want as long as it's not hurting anybody like that's basically what satanists believe do whatever you want as long as it's not hurting anybody and it's this whole like evil demon whatever all this all this shit that's painted across that is is all propaganda for the most part you know that we've been taught that oh this is what's you know satanists are these evil and yeah damien said some things that weren't true like he said he was raped in prison but then that got recanted and so he's not the 100 percent the most trustworthy person oh shit i wonder now, why, if he, he, if he, why has, he would have lied about that i wonder i i don't know maybe he was trying to get some sympathy or something i don't know but the whole thing it's like people who lie aren't necessarily what uh, murderers. <laughs> okay? Right. Somebody could be lying, could be a pathological liar, could have sociopathic tendencies, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're they're guilty of a crime. Uh, it, whether or not he lied about things, that doesn't necessarily tie into a murder. I'm sorry. Like, even in a trial, they're not automatically going to be like, well, he said this and he said this. and didn't, you know, they're not going to be like, oh, well, that means he murdered somebody. Unless it means he's lying about the whole... Well, actually, no. Like, if he changes his story, that would that if he changes the story about what happened during the murder, like that's that's actually helps him instead of uh, instead of hurting him. And then uh, his alibis are kind of, eh. but then again, that isn't necessarily a proof that he did it. I'm sorry. Like, there are a lot of other people that don't have alibis that uh, are not guilty of the crime. Um. And the police didn't try to really do that much to really get more information on the on the crime. Um, they bring the truthers. They bring up the unique knots. Uh, Usually points to three distinct killers. Dude, like I tie my shoes every day a different way. Okay, I do not tie my shoes the same way every single time. <laughs> uh, and and especially if I was in a rush and I was in a hurry, like I I could easily see one person tying up three different knots easily if they're in a hurry like who's going to be like super meticulous and tie the, the knots on these two boys every single the same time every single time if they're in a hurry 
Also, it could have just been somebody held them at gunpoint and made them tie themselves up. So that's another possibility. Doesn't mean anything. The necklace was found. Too late to be included in trial evidence. Apparently it was in Damien's possession. It was covered with blood. Tests proved that DNA was on it consistent with Damien, Jason, and Steve Branch. But this necklace was not admitted to the trial. And the blood is not anywhere to be found to be able to be tested. And I would not put it past this corrupt podunk police department to plant shit. I would not be surprised. I would not put it past them. No, not at all. To do that. Um, they were all talking about the bite mark and the knife and all of this. And other people were saying that, well, Jason had a knife like that. And then, but then the, the guy's testimony is fucked because he says, well, I didn't say anything about a knife. So like, he's completely I- inaccurate. It's like the guy's inebri- inebriated almost and can't even really put together a cohesive state, a sentence. And apparently blue wax was found on the bodies that matched a wax candle found in Damien's room and a candle belonging to his girlfriend. That means nothing. You know why? Because the kid could have easily gotten something on his clothes that could have been in his house. That doesn't necessarily mean it's from a, a blue candle. And what kind of fucking Satanist uses a fucking frilly blue candle for their ritual? <laughs> Sorry, babe. This is all that was on sale at the dollar store. I hope Satan appreciates blue lavender. <laughs> I mean, come on. Ridiculous. Then there was this family that says they saw Damien near the crime scene uh, with his girlfriend. Um... They never retracted the statement. They gained nothing by coming forward. But these are these were the Hollingsworth family were people though were that were unreliable because they were criminals, they were drug addicts, and it's a statement that has nothing connecting to it other than just some people said, Well, I saw Damien and his girlfriend. What do we have anything that connects him to the crime other than a couple people saying that they saw him? There's no DNA. His DNA is not is not found on the crime scene. There were green fibers that apparently were found at the scene that matched the shirt in his house. But those green fibers could probably match any other shirt. I mean, fiber evidence by itself is not a smoking gun. It is not a 100% reliable piece of evidence unless it matches. I, I mean, unless you have more DNA that ties in with it. I mean, even there's even crime cases uh, and forensic files and stuff like that where they did find fiber evidence. But it was other evidence on top of that that led to somebody being convicted. If there was reasonable doubt, you can have as much the circumst- you can have as much circumstantial evidence as you could come up with for a case. But if there's nothing connecting those people to the crime directly, then there's no reason to convict them of that crime. Then they have the confessions that uh, that Jesse Miskelly had. His first confession was so riddled with inaccuracies that I don't even know if any you couldn't even possibly use that. And apparently he confessed again. And he's confessed multiple times before and after. This is a boy who was gaslighted. Okay. He was gaslighted by the police and he was so he was uh, mentally uh, challenged. And he was easily able to be manipulated into believing that this is what happened. And if he was feeling that way, that he felt that it did happen, then he would confess multiple times. He even confessed to his defense attorney 
because his because he didn't really know what the defense attorney was. And so some of these people are going to point to, well, he confessed to the defense attorney and he did this other stuff and he's said all these different confessions. So that means that he's uh, that the confession was true. There are, there are definitely cases out there where there have been multiple different false confessions. Same thing that happened with Johnny Lee Wilson on the Unsolved Mysteries segment where the old lady got murdered. Yeah. I mean, he was mentally retarded as well. And it's like, it, it was basically the same situation. They, they, they basically held him in interrogation until he told them what they wanted to hear and then they charged him. Yeah, and then there was something... There, there was like this thing that happened. There was uh, the defense attorney, Stidham. He did like a experiment with uh, Jesse where he tried to say, hey, you robbed the store to try to see if he could, uh, uh, you know, admit to it. But then there was like the, the tape was missing. But then there's this other thing where this the site tries to say that this transcript proves that the tape did not have anything missing on it. But really, if you read the transcript, it's clearly just the prosecutor guy just saying, or the guy who's interviewing, who's for the prosecution, he's just saying something like, hey, you know, uh, is it true uh, that uh, this this and this and this happened and the tape was there? And then it's like, he says, is it true? Like, he doesn't say it is true. He says, is it true that they found a tape and then it said this? And have you seen this? They And uh, they found that it, it's a typical sort of thing where they, they don't really have enough but they like try to get somebody to to corroborate what they're saying by saying, "Well, is it true that so and so found this?" But it's not true at all. So I don't buy that as evidence. And then there were other, there's like a cellmate that apparently there were other people who were who were with Jesse who said that he confessed or whatever. But then their their stories aren't really uh, don't really hold water. There's even one guy that said like Jesse gave him the sho his shoes after the murder. But then he completely recanted what he said later, so that doesn't really, that doesn't mean anything. And then there was like a cell, there was a a, um, a cellmate that said that he repeatedly confessed to the crime and said he was awful and cold. Um, but uh, I wouldn't, I don't really, I wouldn't put much into that because he's a cellmate, and apparently they said he had no reason to do it. There was no benefit to him, um, but. Some sometimes cellmates just like to say shit. Um, some people just want to say stuff so they can get in the paper. Really, doesn't necessarily mean that you know they're not going to get her out of prison. Some people just want to say things to say stuff. Um, and who knows? He might have like been a cellmate. He might not like him, or or Jesse did something he didn't like and just wants to, you know, uh, mess him up or something by saying you know uh, some some shit about him. And uh, then there is some supporter that apparently was a supporter of, of the West Memphis Three and Jesse. And she said she was a pen pal. And apparently she heard something from Jesse that completely switched her opinion on what happened. So, but we don't know what it is that she said that she heard. She has not come forward and said what he said. So I don't know what to say about that. And then apparently the satanic panic thing, they're trying to say that they're trying to downplay it because they're trying to say that, well, the jury never heard any of these uh, rumors because uh, this was uh, the trial was moved to an hour and away, an hour away from West Memphis to Jonesboro. 
And Jonesboro apparently is college town. And the jury never heard any of these damning rumors because there's very little religious influence in there. But I highly, I doubt that. Oh, it's a college town? That doesn't mean anything. You're trying to tell me that it's a college town. That's why it doesn't have any religious influence. And it was an hour away from West Memphis. So that's why it doesn't have any satanic panic. Come on. It's only an hour away. <laughs> that was, This wasn't just a West Memphis thing. This was a statewide, nationwide thing at the time. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of the stuff just doesn't hold up to me. And the one of the ones they really try to point out is a broken Evan Williams whiskey bottle. Where apparently Jesse uh, put his hand in the Bible and he swore to his attorney, Dan, that he and Damien and Jason committed the murders. Uh, as proof, he told Sidham that he was drunk on Evan Williams whiskey during the murders. And the broken bottle can be found where he threw it on the ground under a bridge in West Memphis. So Stidham told prosecutors he would be forced to believe his client's confession if he find that, found that bottle. They found the bottle in the exact area where he said it would be, but they found it eight months later. And it's a Evan Williams whiskey bottle under an overpass. Like, really, that's going to be that unheard of to find in that area? There's probably a lot of hobos and shit and homeless people who are drinking whiskey. Also, it's like it, it, eight months later. Eight months later. I don't know if I buy that, but then again, it's like that one. It, that that is one piece of evidence that does make me kind of pause. I have to admit, but it's not enough for me to convict anybody. There's still enough reasonable doubt, and see, that's the thing. Um, I I think it, it's less likely that they're guilty, despite of this whole whiskey bottle thing. Do you think there's a chance that the West Memphis Three might be guilty? Um. You know, the thing is, is like the thing with this case is like you, you just don't fucking know, you know, you weren't there and mm. you don't know. And that's why this has become such a uh, I don't want to say revered, but it's become such a popular case because they're all the most popular cases of, of these kind of things in history. They're always cases where there's a point and a counterpoint and they both have strong evidence or strong theories to support their stance the cut and dry cases are never talked about because they're cut and dry um i feel like with a lot of the uh, shootings that went on with the police you know brutality and you know we heard all about that in the news those are these big controversial things because there was like two sides to the to the coin you know one side was saying oh the police you know use unnecessary brute force and then the other side was saying well if the person blah 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 and i feel like that's kind of the same way with this you have the one side where i could show paradise lost the first one to my dad and at the end my dad would probably to be totally convinced that those kids did it based on whatever um or maybe you wouldn't i don't know i don't want to put judgment in his brain without that that may not actually be there but or i don't know like i don't think they did i'm still sticking to my theory that it's a drifter that is just a psychopath that that was into killing and, it, and they were random acts of violence that were super unfortunate that's what i think happened and i stick to that i think they caught a ride somewhere um away mm -hmm. You know, with they went to maybe they went to that 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 truck stop and got a ride, hitched a ride, or maybe it was a trucker 
themselves. I mean, that's more believable than some of the conspiracy theories I've heard or the theories some people have come up with that one of the kids uh, dropped in and saw one of their dads uh, banging some other guy or something. Oh my something, god, yeah, like, see, on. when it gets to that point, it's just like, you know. Or they were selling drugs and, and there was a drug uh, deal going on and the kids saw it or something. Um, but that ties into that one case in Unsolved Mysteries where that kid got shot. Um, I think that might have been the case there. The one, the kid who was, uh, they said he committed suicide, but then it's more than likely he was shot because there really was some kind of possible drug activity going on in the woods at that time. But yeah, I, I, I think that's a good theory. Uh, the whole, uh, random act of violence. But I, I do think, you know, the crime of passion thing, I think that could be a good that could be a potential theory as well by John, uh, the FBI uh, profiler, uh, John Douglas. He, he thought that might have been the case. Um, and I, I do think there is a possibility that Terry Hobbs could have possibly done it. I, I know I'm not saying he for sure did it, but when it comes to a connection or motive, like there seems to be more there with him than Mark Byers or the West Memphis Three. I don't think the West Memphis Three did it because I just think there's so much evidence to me that does not connect them to doing it. Their DNA is not on the crime scene. There's nothing there. Um, and some recollection of some guy, I, I, I'm sorry, like uh, the, the same people are saying shit that Damien killed dogs and did all of it and did satanic rituals and shit beforehand. Um, so I don't necessarily buy that. And it's just one of those things that it just doesn't seem like they did it. I mean, what, they're like teenagers? Like, I mean, they were little boys, but I mean, one was mentally handicapped. And either, I mean, they just didn't seem like the type of people that would do that. I'm sorry. Um, regardless of what people might say about Damien, yeah, he's weird and he says some dark shit, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's in, into slaughtering and torturing kids. Um, and drinking their blood. Yeah, so at the end of the day, this is a cautionary tale to not judge a book by its cover, and don't rush to conclusions, and stay the fuck away from small towns. <laughs> uh, I think that's all we have to say yeah. on this matter. I mean, yeah. we covered this pretty in-depth. I mean, I want to give a big thanks to Mike for this one. You really knocked it out of the park here with all your, uh, you know, your research, and you really took the reins on this particular episode, which I, I appreciate. Thank you. Thank um, you. So yeah, I mean that's that's You're welcome. <laughs> All right. Um so if you want to uh if you want to find out more about us, you can uh join our Facebook group uh, Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries. Um just yeah, search that or you can like our fan page, but you already know how I feel about fan pages. I already plugged the YouTube channels, but if you want to check out my new dan uh Dancing with Ghosts Enjoy the Silence music video, you can find that on my YouTube page. I also posted it in our group. Uh, like I said, Uncovering Unexplained Mystery shirts with the logo that always pops up on your phone every week telling you all right, we have a new podcast, the, a shirt with that logo, but it's going to say the full name. It won't just say, um, those should be out Tuesday <laughs> and I will get them up as soon as possible so you guys can start rep repping our podcast out in public in front of everybody. And uh, on Unsolved Mysteries news, the soundtrack, at least portions of the soundtrack, are getting released, but only on vinyl. Yes, so. yes, that that 
I can't believe how much news that has made, but I mean, it is kind of a big deal to me, but I just didn't think anybody else would give a shit. I, I thankfully was able to order the Deluxe 3 LP set of it. Um, I'm kind of wishing that I had gotten the color variant now instead of the black, but I thought, it's mm -hmm. Unsolved Mysteries, man. You got to get black, you know? You got to yeah. get... And apparently, the reason why there's no digital version is John and Terry refuse to give them the digital rights, which I think is just bullshit. I think, honestly, I think that's kind of cool. I think it's kind of cool that you can't just gain access to something with the click of a button paying no money. No, no. I, I'm saying digital rights with the purchase of the LP. Like, you can only get... The well, they know as soon as if you they, buy, it. they they uh they know that if they did do that, then people would just leak it. They just or just be, or or it'd be actually you're not able to do that because it's actually some kind of corrupt kind of corrupted file thing, or like you're only able to stream it or something digitally. If you access this particular Dude, pirates will find a way to take if, yeah. if you know. But at the same time, it's like I okay fine but I, I just think it's better to have an option there for people who don't have a record player or don't have you know just i mean that's just me especially fans of the show it's like a lot of fans of the show are just gonna be shit out of luck and can't really do yeah, anything. yeah i mean i don't even own a record player so when the thing arrives i don't even know what the fuck i'm gonna do <laughs> like exactly like i'm gonna have to like I'm gonna have to like buy one of those cheap ass Crosley record players, and I, I, I you know, because I'm not gonna invest a shit ton of money in a record player. You can get one of the USB powered ones. Yeah, I might do that because I, I do really want to listen to that damn soundtrack. Um, I'd love to too, but I can, I can't, you know. <laughs> but you know, if I had the money, I would have bought one too. But I, I don't really have it right now, and also it's sold out fast. The singles are still available, but they only have like a few tracks yeah and like i mean the, the, you know uh i want to shout out i think it was um let me get his name terror terror vision or something well it's terror vision records but um again in our group this news was made available to me very quickly and um let's see the guy's name here who let me know isn't it a moderator what wasn't it our moderator? Wasn't it John? No, it is. Uh, it was Jamil Campbell. Camp Campbell Pompey was the got the okay. first person that posted anything about it on our group. And as soon as he posted it, I went and bought it instantly. And then somehow, like I, I think he either took it down, like he took down his post or something. But appreciate you for posting that, and that's another reason why you guys should join the group because, like, if there's any kind of breaking unsolved mysteries news, it always gets. Um, brought up on our group because we have some really passionate fans of the show in our group um and for i guess they like our podcast too apparently so and, and us. us maybe not so much me <laughs> but uh i i'm with my oh with come my, on they, my, they like my opinionated you. loud mouth so they they like you i i'm just about as opinionated opinionated as you, you are really so. like me <laughs> <laughs> okay sally my mom's name that's, that's, my mom's uh, name is sally Let's, let's, uh, I think, I think we've, uh, this has been a pretty, uh, long one. I uh, hope you all enjoyed it, but, uh, you know, it was a two and a half hour long movie. Uh, yeah. So, and there probably were more stuff we could have maybe mentioned or talked about, but those are the main things I wanted to discuss when it comes to this documentary. It's decent. It's a decent one. Uh, it's got good production values, a solid direction. I like the editing. Um, 
but it, it's it's definitely if you've seen the first three, it's not as meaty as the other ones are, and it can get kind of uh, dull because you're like, well, I know this already. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. But there's some. It was worth a watch though because there were some extra stuff that uh, the other documentary. You get to see. Mention. You get to see uh, alligator snapping turtles uh, tear at a dead pig at one point. So watch <laughs> it just for that. I mean. And if you guys, if you guys like when we go off on these more, you know, not unsolved mysteries related mysteries, let us know that too, because like I'm, I'm yeah. always down for. There's another documentary I want to check out that apparently is, I, I think it's a little hard to find. Like you have to, you can rent it on iTunes for like five bucks or or rent it on uh, Vimeo, and it's called Incendiary, and apparently it's about another like case of, uh, where it's like corruptly somebody gets framed. Yeah, and it takes place in Texas. It's supposed to be pretty good, so I, I, I you know, ever get around to watching that, I, I might, I definitely might be uh, into talking about it. I just, I just so, hope some um, more Scientology things come out, so just so we have an excuse to talk about that again. <laughs> I love, I fucking love Scientology. Well, maybe we can talk about other stuff. Maybe we can uh, do an episode on that Jesus Camp movie. Oh, no, that? I haven't. But uh, yeah, that would be really cool. Covering like, cults are really interesting to me as well. Um, I, I do want to do an episode on on what happened to Shelley Miscavige, uh, David Miscavige's mm-hmm. wife. Because I've seen, I've seen Jason, I've seen Jesus Camp. It is nuts. You will, you will just be like, wow. I need to put that on the okay. to watch list because that sounds like right up my alley. I love stuff like that. Not. So anyway, uh, yeah, uh, thank you for listening to the podcast. Have a good rest of your night. Bye, everyone. See ya. What's up, everybody? Josh here. Just wanted to let everyone know that my new album, The Nightmare Inside You, is now available on Bandcamp, Spotify, and iTunes. Thank you for any and all support. It means the world to me.